Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And will you pray with me? Mothering God, on this day of transfiguration, transfigure all of our tables in light of your compassionate gaze. Amen. And please be seated. A few weeks ago, Pastor Ben introduced our annual sermon series, Voices in the Wilderness, which intends to train our attention on global voices that articulate the theological visions of the oppressed. Throughout this series, Ben and I have switched back and forth week to week. Week one, Ben grounded our thoughts in the content of black theology. Week two, I tried to help us consider how the divine light of black theology might inform our understanding of God, our world, and our place in it. In week three, Ben grounded our thoughts in the content of indigenous theology. And in week four, I tried to help us consider how the divine light of indigenous theology might inform our understanding of God, this world, and our place in it. Week five, last week, Ben grounded our thoughts in the content of womanist theology. And this morning, we conclude this sermon series by considering how the divine light of womanist theology might inform our understanding of God, this world, and our place in it. Through Ben's sermon on womanist theology, among other points of emphasis, there are a couple points, a couple ideas, actually, that I'd like to spend our time pondering this morning, which include the God who sees, this is a pillar of womanist theology, and tables of belonging. This is a second pillar uh, within womanist theology. The God who sees and tables of belonging. We'll begin with the God who sees. The God who sees is a primary pillar in womanist theology. The idea for this is grounded in a biblical story that's located in Genesis chapter 16. In the story, Abraham and Sarah have a maid servant named Hagar. But to be clear, maid servant is really a neutered word. The Hebrew word is shifka, shifka, which can also be translated as bond servant bondwoman, slave. Sometimes it can even be translated wench. Now, I understand that wench is a derogatory, disparaging, and denigrating word. But to help try and import the meaning of this story, especially in light of womanist theology, we need to move forward with this word. According to sociologist Rachel Feinstein in her book, When Rape Was Legal, she writes, The word wench creates and perpetuates a stereotype of black women as promiscuous, legitimizing rape and sexual coercion against them by denying them the possibility of their own sexual victimization. Historically speaking, there's a phrase, bed wench, which used to describe black women enslaved by white men 
for sexual purposes. And that absolutely fits the description of what we see happen here in Genesis chapter 16. Abraham and Sarah have a bond servant, a bond woman, a slave, a wench named Hagar. And the text tells us that Hagar is an Egyptian. That is to say, she is a foreigner. And it's very likely that she was acquired as property by Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he spent time in Egypt and he was gifted maidservants. Again, the same Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 12, shifka. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, this core passage in womanist theology, Sarah is unable to bear children, and so she forces Hagar to become Abraham's bedwench, hoping that she might be able to bear her husband a child. Abraham has sex with Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant, which you think would be good news for Sarah. But her response is not as though she's received good news. She is furious. Filled with jealousy, the text tells us that Sarah despised Hagar and treated her harshly. Again, the word harshly here is a neutered word. In the Hebrew, it's anah, which can be translated to oppress, to humiliate, and to afflict. We see the same word used in Genesis 34 when we read, When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the region, saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. And the word for force here is anah. It's used again in Deuteronomy 26 where we read, When the Egyptians treated us harshly, anah, and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us. And again, in 2 Kings chapter 17, where we read, He afflicted them, Anah, and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had banished them from his presence. Rape, hard labor, and being plundered and banished are all the result of this Hebrew word, Anah. And so you see Sarah finding out that her foreign, foreign, pregnant, bedwench, woman, slave. Talk about marginalized intersectionality, right? When Sarah finds out that Hagar is pregnant, she despises her and treats her with anah. And Sarah's anah, her force, her oppression, her affliction are so inhumane and severe that, that Hagar, with no rights, no property, no home, no family, no protection, Hagar decides that it is better. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Hagar decides that it is better to flee than to remain in her current situation. And when she flees, she ends up on the road to Shur, which is also called the Way to Shur, which was an over 300-mile-long path directly through barren wilderness desert lands. Could you imagine? To be very honest, I cannot imagine. As a white, straight, middle-class male in the United States, I cannot imagine. But I'm guessing that some of you in this room can kind of imagine. Like perhaps you've been in a relationship in which you had little power, maybe no agency, and you were treated in that relationship with anah. Or perhaps you were pregnant and did not have the ability or desire to raise a child, and you were treated by everyone around you with anah. Or perhaps you're a black, brown, or indigenous person who has encountered again and again and again, personally and systemically, anah. 
Or perhaps you're a queer person and your friends or your family or your church has responded to you and your very sexuality with anah. I do not believe that it's a stretch to think because of your marginalized intersectionality in society that some of you in this very room have faced enough oppression and affliction that made fleeing through a 300-mile barren desert seem like your best shot at life. And so, to preserve what life she had, Hagar vulnerably, dangerously, and courageously flees into an unknown future through the desert. And in the middle of her desert wandering, because it's springtime, we are told, she finds a watering hole in the middle of nowhere. It's a small grace, but when you're Hagar, you take whatever you can get, don't you? And then suddenly in this story, something astonishing transpires. In the desert, at a watering hole, Hagar, a foreign pregnant bed wench woman slave, according to the world that she lived in. This very Hagar is met by the angel of the Lord. I'd like to pause here. Hagar, a foreign, pregnant, bed, wench, woman, slave. Marginalized intersectionality upon marginalized intersectionality upon marginalized intersectionality is met by the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is like the angel of all angels. It's like saying the Ohio State. It's like the angel, right? Angel from the Hebrew Malach, and then the Lord from the Hebrew Yahweh. This is the Malach Yahweh. This is the angel Yahweh that we read about in Exodus chapter 23 when God tells Moses that his angel is going to lead Israel through the wilderness, declaring, my name is in him. And so whether you think that this is the eternal Christ, like some Christian scholars do, or perhaps a theophany in which God reveals itself as the angel of Yahweh, this part of the story is incredible. Hagar, a woman of marginalized intersectionality who was treated with anah by those who hold all of the power and all of the privilege. Hagar, who has to choose what may very well end her life as the only way to preserve her shot at life. This very Hagar is met by the angel of all angels in the wilderness by a watering hole. It's incredible. I don't think people in Hagar's time would have believed that God would care one bit about a person of marginalized intersectionality like this. And unfortunately, I think we would all say tragically, this very story plays itself out today in a thousand places, doesn't it? Very often by Western Christians in the United States who, like Sarah, with all of the power and privilege, treat people of marginalized intersectionality with anah. And yet... Yet, as this womanist story goes, the angel of the Lord asks Hagar, where have you come from and to where are you going? Hagar responds, I'm running away from my mistress. Sarah, the angel of the Lord responds, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, we have to pause here. This is the part of the story that I think can be very jolting. Wait, what? She just got away. Why would she go back? That doesn't seem right. And to be clear, it's not right. And that's why this text fits so well within womanist theology. As womanist theologians point out, in that day and age, this was the only way, as terrible as it was, as horrifying as it was, this was the only way for Hagar to have any chance at survival, and it did, in fact, end up saving her life. But 
But before returning, the angel of the Lord encourages Hagar with these hopeful words. I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because the Lord has given heed to your afflictions. I love this line. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live in the east of all of his brothers. This is incredible. Hagar, a person of marginalized intersectionality, will have too many descendants to count. That is good news. Hagar, a person of marginalized intersectionality, will have a son who is a wild donkey of a man, which isn't a bad thing back in the ancient times. Hagar, a person of marginalized intersectionality, will have a son who will live, live, think about that, live in his own land east of his brothers. For Hagar, this is good, very good, deeply good news. Buoyed by this news, Hagar, the story tells us, that then names God. Now, this is the part of the story I think that sometimes gets passed over. We, get past, we pass over it. We just keep going with, with the text, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19. This is, in my mind, the most important part of the entire story. Up to this point in the Bible, nobody has named God. Nobody. Adam didn't name God. Eve didn't name God. Abel didn't name God. Noah didn't name God. Abraham didn't name God. Sarah didn't name God. Nobody has named God. Until here, in Genesis chapter 16, when God receives its very first name. And this God is named not by the powerful and not by the privileged and not by the blessed and not by the straight and not by the white and not by the Americans, but by the foreign, pregnant, bedwench woman slave, Hagar. And what does Hagar name her God? The God who sees. The story concludes, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the spring was called Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. For a moment I'd like to pause for us to look upon a painting titled Pregnant Hagar. Unfortunately, I couldn't find its source, but I think it captures the whole story pretty well, doesn't it? I mean, look at that. Pregnant, alone, leaning back with exhaustion, perhaps we could even guess relief. Her arms hang limply behind her body. Her head is back. She's gazing up into the heavens. At least to me, there seems to be a tired ease in her posture. As I take in this painting, I imagine Hagar releasing an enormous breath of weight as she breathes in the God who sees her exactly as she is in all of her marginalized intersectionality as she listens to the divine speak good news over her very own life. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful and hopeful and good, so very good to be seen. We often misunderstand how important it is to be seen, I think. 
in an experiment by psychologists at Harvard called the Still Face Experiment. Parents of children took a couple minutes to interact with their little ones as good parents should do. They'd make googly eyes at the child, they'd smile, they'd point, they'd coo with their children, and they were intentional to warmly gaze at their children, but the one rule was that they couldn't touch them. They just had to engage with their faces and their eyes. And while this took place, the little children were observed. In most cases, the children were delighted. They laughed, they smiled, they screamed with glee. And then came the still face portion of the experiment. You can find it online, you can watch it. The still face part is actually kind of hard to watch. For two minutes, the parents would stoically look at their children without emotion or interaction. Just stare at them, almost, almost stare right through them. And while this took place, the children were observed. In most cases, the children were terribly upset. They grew increasingly upset. They groaned, they frowned, they screamed with anger, they shrieked, and they even started to weep. About this experiment, Dr. Edward Tronick concluded, the experiment reveals the good, the bad, and the ugly of human interaction. The good is what is in an ideal world where every child experiences something like the parent's loving gaze. Some examples could be an adult warmly gazing into a child's eyes, an adult noticing their child when they're trying to point something out and and looking where the child is pointing, an adult smiling at them as a way to demonstrate to them how deeply they are loved and accepted. According to the experiment, it's this kind of active seeing and warm engagement by adults that helps to grow whole and healthy children. But then there's what Dr. Tronick calls the bad. The bad occurs when active seeing and warm engagement doesn't take place. In this scenario, children go without experiences of active seeing and warm engagement by their caretakers, which has many negative impacts on a child's development. Fortunately, humans are resilient, and so Dr. Tronick states that humans can overcome the bad if active seeing and warm engagement eventually begin to take place. So that over time, the good begins to eclipse the bad moments of feeling alone or not accepted. And finally, Dr. Tronick talks about the ugly. The ugly is when a child is is unable to get back to the good because they live their entire life without the good, warm gaze of people in authority over their lives, with people in power over their lives. And so they're never able to get back to the good where they live their life knowing that those who are most responsible for them deeply cherish them and adore them. I do not know what kinds of interactions you have experienced in relation to those who are supposed to be your caretakers. I don't know if it's been good, if it's been bad, or if it's been ugly. Depending on the breadth of your marginalized intersectionality, I can only imagine the things that have been said to you. I can only imagine the painful stares of people in power who were supposed to actively see you and warmly engage you, but failed to do so. And so, at one time or another, perhaps many times over the course of your life, like Hagar, you have dangerously and vulnerably had to flee into the desert in order to save yourself from the violence of family and friends and partners and even faith communities. And perhaps these traumatic experiences are so deep inside of you that you've come to imagine God, the divine, 
as looking down upon your life through the faces of family and friends and partners and faith communities who have frowned upon you and harshly judged your precious life. But to be clear, very clear, that is not the gaze of God. That is the gaze of humans who can only perceive of God through their own straight, white, privileged lens. Can we pull up the next picture? Here's a painting titled The Black Madonna of Compassion. Can we look at it for a moment? Of course, this is Mother Mary holding baby Jesus. Just look at their gaze. Look at their gentle love and care. Notice the tender embrace. I don't think it matters how you interpret the painting, whether, whether you're Mary and through the infant Jesus, you can more fully trust the divine sees you, or, or perhaps it's more helpful to see Mary here as the divine feminine, holding us all as children of God. For truly the infinite is the God who sees every single one of us. Not like Sarah sees Hagar, but as we see it here. The Divine Mother lovingly seeing you. God, if we could just hold this image inside of ourselves, you in relationships you've had to end, you in the difficult decisions that you've had to make, you in the failures that have filled you with uncertainty about yourself, you in your sexuality that you know in your deepest self is your true self, you in the marginalized intersectionality that is your life, you. For every time that you've had to flee in order to save yourself and have felt all alone in the desert, the Hagar story declares like a trumpet, God God sees you. And I'm hopeful that if we can hold this divine gaze in our hearts, like deeply, daily, for weeks, months, maybe even years, that the bad and the ugly gazes of privileged people in power can be undone, overturned. Heal your embodied trauma and rework your neural wiring to rest more fully into the divine gaze of love that tenderly holds and compassionately sees every person. I'll conclude with a second primary pillar in womanist theology, tables of belonging. Grassroot tables of belonging around which difference and dialogue support and sustain life. I don't know about you, but for me over the past several years as we've become increasingly aware of how fragile life is, right? As we've become increasingly aware of how much injustice and inequality and inequity there is, and as we become increasingly aware of how troubling systems and structures are, I have found myself looking for and hoping for bigger and better solutions, right? Like the problems are so big, we need big solutions. We need bigger and better politicians. We need bigger and better moments that make the news and change everyone's hearts and bring about cosmic shalom. And for me, at least, while hoping for this big change, I have become more aware of the fact that it usually results in my feelings of overwhelm and paralysis. Nothing is going to be big enough to fix all of this. I mean, what could alter all of this? There's so much change needed and it's into this very overwhelm and paralysis that womanist theology replies Start here. Just start here. Stop looking up and out. Start, start right here. And we'll pull up a final picture here. It's a painting titled Giving Thanks by Horace Pippin. In the painting are two children and a woman sitting down. There's a, another woman standing up, but she's together. They're all together around the table. 
About the table, womanist theologian Layla Phillips writes, the kitchen table is a key metaphor for understanding the womanist perspective on dialogue. The kitchen table is an informal, woman-centered space where all are welcome and all can participate. At the table, people can come and go, agree or disagree, take turns talking or all speak at once, and taught, shout, complain, or counsel, even be present in silence. At the kitchen table, people share the truths of their lives on equal footing to learn through face-to-face conversation. I love that last line. At the kitchen table, people share their truths of their lives on equal footing and learn through face-to-face conversation. And it makes me wonder, on this day of transfiguration, I wonder if tables like these transfigure to become divine tables around which every person is able to encounter the divine gaze of love through one another. Could you imagine? Divine tables surrounded by the divine gaze of love popping up all over the place. Tables like these would hold the power and potential on a grassroots level to affect the change, the renewal, and the reformation that we are all hoping for. One table, one meal, one conversation, one compassionate, loving gaze at a time. Transfiguring the bad and the ugly into the good, the very good. Tables can be that powerful if we just open our hearts to one another at these tables. Will you pray with me? Divine love on this day of transfiguration, in light of your compassionate gaze, transfigure our tables into tabernacles of love that heal our traumas, fill us full, and free us to nurture your loving table in this world. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.